Welcome to the Envision Rise podcast. I'm your host and Vice President of Equity and Inclusion, Stacey Hegarty. Joining us today is Shara Ruffin, licensed social worker, and a million other things, including the founder of Journey to Licensure and the author of two books, 90 Days of Inspiration, which is a study companion for social workers taking their licensure exams, and 90 Day Prayer Journal, a journal for social workers. Did I skip anything there, Shara? <laughs> That's good enough. That's you fine. are a busy woman. <laughs> I am. Well, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners? You do so many amazing things, and I want to get right into it. (laughs) Sure. Hi, everybody. Hope everybody's doing well. My name is Shara. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, LinkedIn advisor, clinical supervisor, and I'm an exam coach for Journey to Licensure, which is my business, consulting business for social workers to help them pass their boards, as well as helping them, empowering them through their journey as a social worker. So that's what I do in a nutshell among my many hats. I'm also a best-selling author. Stacy just mentioned one of my books, 90 Days of Prayer, is a five-time Amazon bestseller. I've also been featured in Business Insider, among many other things I've done. But we'll jump right into the topic. I'm excited. Let's go. All right. So let's talk social work and let's talk being a black woman in social work. Let's talk about how all of those things kind of link together and the equity building things that we can do. I know that was a lot. I just threw it in. So let's, <laughs> you let's, definitely did. I was like, whoo, she going right for the juggler. But that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> let's a black woman in social work because it's a field that is not necessarily common for black women. I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but I know the percentages are low. So your percentages are low. It's been an interesting experience for me being an African-American social worker. Nonetheless, a clinical social worker, there's not many, even just, you know, African-American aside, in terms of the numbers for licensed social workers, there's even less of us. So they even bring that, I can't remember like percentages stuff off the top of my head, but what I can tell you right now regarding our board's ASWB, Association of Social Work Boards, they're the testing regulatory boards. And right now there's a big firestorm because last year they came out with a, I believe a decade long study of looking at the discrepancies of the licensing boards. Now, for those that don't know, social work, we have to pass our social work licensing boards. Most people don't know that they're very rigorous. So I'll get into that story shortly. But there was a big firestorm because they said that the three groups of people that don't pass, they're black. They don't speak English as their first language or they are older test takers. Well, those were the three groups that don't pass. Predominantly, they are Caucasian that do pass the exam. So right now they're looking at restructuring the exams. They're doing focus groups, NASW, National Association of Social Workers, to see what can be done. This is something in my career I have definitely faced in terms of the challenges, which is why my company was birthed in the first place. But in terms of just being an African-American social worker, it's interesting because there's not many of us. However, for those that are in the field, there are a lot of challenges, mostly around licensing, because in order for once we pass our boards, there are a lot more economic opportunities. There are a lot of opportunities in terms of being able to get professional development. And right now that window is closed. But I would love to get into that story briefly of just sharing that experience. With you. Yes, please share your experience because it's a fascinating story. And of course, it has a happy ending, at least at this yeah, point. You know, I think you're not the we don't talk enough about what happens when things don't go as planned. So I do want you to share your story. 
Yes. Oh man. So what I can tell you, it took me a decade to get to my LCSW. So I graduated from Howard University with my master's in social work in 2010. About a year later, I realized, oh, I need to go take the licensing boards. So I did. I missed it by three points. <laughs> so I was, I believe, 23, 24 at the time. Of course, this may be a little bit more than I'm 37 now. <laughs> but it was very interesting because at the time, I didn't think much of it. I was like, oh, well, I was disappointed, but it really didn't bother me much. Then about another year in, I was like, maybe I need to go ahead and take this thing again. Back then, the licensing exam wasn't as prevalent as it is now. And I took it again, and I did pass it. However, it took me three months of studying eight hours per day with breaks as if I was working. And at the time, I could do that because I didn't have any kids, any responsibilities at that time. It was just me. And I was pretty pretty distraught in the sense of the study process. There weren't any resources for how I processed information. At the time I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder and a math learning disorder. So I had to literally rewrite my study guide in a way that I understood it. So that took about two months before I could even start studying. Oh my God. And yeah. The back, I mean, right now we have AI tools and whatnot. We, that goes a lot faster, but literally I had to rewrite my study guide in a way that I understood it in Googling examples of different theoretical concepts. After that, I did pass in 20, I believe it was summer 2013. And then life just kind of kicked in for another nine years. Some of the things I experienced was I met my now ex-husband. He was stationed at Fort Belvoir and we dated briefly. I found out shortly after we started dating that I became pregnant with our first child. And after that, he was sent to Fort Campbell and then he was sent to Afghanistan right away. So, which was kind of scary because I called him and said, hey, <laughs> I'm pregnant, I'm having a baby. He's like, what? Okay, are you keeping that? I said, yes. And it was an interesting journey just because I was happy with my first child. And then seven months I had to call him and say I lost the baby. Oh. I was seven months in utero. And to find out that the baby suffered from lack of oxygen due to the umbilical cord being wrapped around her neck. I woke up and it was a pool of blood. I went to the hospital. They told me there was no heartbeat. That night, I came back and told my husband through, at the time, through Skype that we had lost her. And I never forget the look on his face. He was devastated, crying. I had never seen this man cry so far. And it was a pretty exhausting time because I had to work. I kind of disassociated from that experience for a time because I felt like I needed to. I remember calling my mother and she was planning the baby shower for Asia, my daughter's name. And she, I remember her passing out literally when I called her phone and telling her. Oh. It was one of the most devastating parts of that journey for me because for my husband at the time, he never got a chance to feel my tummy. He never got a chance to hear a kick. I at least had that experience of her growing inside me. And when he came back, I remember us just embracing each other. And then a couple of months later, here comes Jaden. <laughs> um, my son, who is now almost nine years old, he was born a year later after he came back from deployment. Jaden was born in June 30 of 2014. And that was even a trying time because Jaden was born with a kidney abnormality at six mm -hmm. months. And to find out that he had a condition where he needed to get surgery in order for his kidneys to function properly. So he got that surgery, but then it was hell for the next two years. He became really colic. 
back to back. Mind you, while this is happening, my marriage is starting to fall apart. My husband at the time decides to retire from the military. The other thing that is going on is that I'm struggling with postpartum depression. I'm working as a full-time psychotherapist. I went back to work four weeks postpartum, post my C-section. I went right back. Jada was no more than four weeks old. And my husband stayed with me and my mom for a couple of weeks. And he was like, see ya, I'm going back to Afghanistan. And I was like, we just had a baby. And he decided in that year, that first year of Jaden's life, he's like, I'm just going to go ahead and retire. But we were so disconnected after Jaden had a surgery that our marriage really started to deteriorate. He's dealing with retirement. I'm dealing with the secondary trauma that's popping up after I had lost my daughter, then dealing with a baby that's medically compromised, then trying to juggle my career as a therapist, working with patients that were high risk. I could be sure a therapist at three till about three, four o'clock. And then I have to travel two buses and a train to get back home to my son to take care of him. And at any time, if he got sick or if there are complications, I would be in the emergency room till midnight or maybe in the next morning and still have to go to work. I did that for Jacob was, I think so he was about four years old, mm-hmm. back to back hospitalizations, working full time. My marriage deteriorated. I ended up divorcing it when Jaden was about almost three, 2016, and then having to reclaim my career, going to therapy, Mm -hmm. trying to just fill it out. And while collecting my hours towards my license, the LCSW takes two years. Again, I always say it took me a decade because so many deterrents happened during that time. When I was collecting my hours towards my supervision, which took another almost five years, by the time Jaden got to kindergarten, I decided to go ahead and submit my hours for licensure. Now, here's the interesting part. Unfortunately, the job where I worked at, it was high turnover. We would have a different supervisor every year. One of my supervisors, I had to track down in New Jersey, Princeton. Another one I had to fly down to in Florida to have her sign off for my hours to fly back home, submit the hours into my board. It was a lot. Five different supervisors signed off for my hours, but I made it through. It was a grueling experience of trying to balance my personal struggles along with being a therapist, along with trying to be a mom. And then after that, when my son hit kindergarten, I decided to just say, hey, I'm ready to move on. My hours got approved by the board of Pennsylvania and sit for my exam. I'm like, I'm thinking I'm ready to go. November 2019, I take the exam and I miss it by two points. Oh, I was completely devastated. I would rather miss it by 50 points. (laughs) Now I'm beyond, you know, when I missed my master's several years ago, it's like, it's okay, whatever. But I had worked years now to get to this point, despite losing my daughter, despite going through postpartum depression, despite just the whirlwinds of life. And for me to fail it, I didn't know what to do. Not only did I miss it by two points, I had changed 40 answers on the exam because I was very anxious. On top of that, I trained a girlfriend of mine who took the exam at the same time I did. She passes. <laughs> I'm stuck. So that was November 2019. After that, I didn't, I just felt really depressed. <laughs> so I ended up getting a part-time job as a contractor for a couple of weeks just to see if I could get back on board with licensing. They tell you that 90 days takes place where you're not able to take the exam again. It's like, cool, I'm going to take it again. March 2020 gets. <laughs> we all know what happened then. Yes. The pandemic <laughs> hits. So a week before the pandemic, I lose my part-time job. 
I lose my insurance. I am in now a really deep depression because there's a setback. Everything stops. So I'm now at home with three kids, including my partner's children, who's now my soon-to-be husband, and my son, who are all homeschooled at the same time. So I'm mom, I'm cleaning the house, I'm taking care of home, and I'm depressed and playing nothing but Animal Crossing with my kids because I I couldn't control anything. And I'm like, here I go again. I don't know what to do. So for about from November 2019 till August, I just took some time out just to go through the depression, the symbolic grief, the loss. And really just trying to figure out what was next. Now, ultimately, I did take that exam and pass it November 8th, 2020. I'll never forget. But what it took for me to get there was realizing I needed more help than what was given to me. I ended up getting assistance with my health. And I ended up getting a psychiatrist, a therapist of my own. I ended up getting on medication for the first time. Because the other part of this is stigma related to mental health. I ended up borrowing money from my family to get it updated psyche valve for my boards to give me accommodations i needed to update a psyche valve that was within a 10-year span my old one was way too old because it was done when i was 21 i ended up going ahead and getting those accommodations but i had to get a psyche valve they found i had adhd combined type i wish i would have known that many years ago but it made sense of wow how why it took me so long to process and memorize and information so I went from eight hours of studying to three hours of studying with breaks in between and really learning how my brain worked along with holistic practices and I passed but for me to go through all of that for just a license speaks really to the barriers because what I found out Stacey is when I posted that I passed on LinkedIn over a hundred thousand people responded (laughs) on a post and I was like what the hell are people responding to I don't even know if it's cursed on here but I said, what are people responding to? And it was the fact that they watched me talk about failing to about 30,000 connections on LinkedIn to yep. watch me go through the process and talking about that journey openly of going through depression, of managing motherhood, of just going through the motions with it, and then seeing me when it was the hero's journey. And from there, it said, I have to help more people. I have to let people know my story. And almost three years later, almost 300 plus social workers later, here I am. <laughs> It's incredible. Any one of those things all on its own would have derailed somebody else. And here you are today and you've turned what was initially failure Mm -hmm. into thriving. How can we help other people do that? Because when we're in the midst of crisis and for you, crisis on top of crisis, Mm -hmm. it's almost impossible to raise your hand and say, help. And in the workforce, we often, as leaders, as managers, as executives, expect that the members of our workforce are just going to raise their hand and ask for help when they need it, because otherwise we don't have time. What can we be doing differently to better support people on their journey? Because there is no straight path in life. And we often don't even know what our employees are going through. How many times have we learned something about an employee's life and thought, oh, my gosh, I wish I would have known. I would have done something differently. So what guidance would you give to a manager or an executive on being more vulnerable and being more empathetic with their employees? Be a human. (laughs) be a a good human manager titles aside we're all human we all have our imperfections i think it has to start with acknowledging first number one acknowledging that even a leader is not perfect acknowledging that we all have our flaws and that we even need support 
I read an article on LinkedIn that they talk about top-down burnout, not just the workers, but even the leaders. It trickles down. Mm -hmm. So I think it has to start first with even managers recognizing what they need to do to take care of themselves and then be willing to cultivate an environment where that can happen for others. So describe what does that ideal environment look like? If you can describe that for listeners, sometimes that's really helpful for people to understand what they're aiming for. One, I would say to keep it more generalized, just because every work environment is going to be very different depending on the culture. But what I would say is, if you can, have an open forum with your employees to say, what do you need? I know at one of my hospitals, when there was such high turnout, one of the things that they did, I remember, was having a consultant come in and not talk to the manager because the employees might not feel comfortable, but having maybe a consultant come in and talk to your employees about in a safe space where what things they may need to be more productive. What are their goals? I think in order to increase productivity, which, you know, top down is always looking at, you have to look at what are your employees need? You know, your work and your personal life, they're not separate. They go together. They impact each other. So I always say work-life fusion, not work-life balance. I don't think there's a such thing as that because I think they go hand in hand. You only have one life. (laughs) So I would say that's one idea is to have an outside consultant come in. And if if your company can't afford an outside consultant, then just having a forum where you effectively communicate with your employees that, hey, I want to know how I can help you. As simple as that. And just open that door for people to come to you and cultivate that environment, a check-in, or even having, if there is a team of staff, for example, that you may have another manager overseeing that team, then that manager may need more training on how to cultivate that type of work culture. And they may need more training on just emotional intelligence. It's something that's so simple, but I think when it comes to working with people, sometimes more education of what's needed to have an impact that's going to be positive is more useful. Does that make sense? It does. And you made me think of when I think back to my own journey through my first job to eventually becoming a leader, becoming an executive to where I am today, Along the way, a lot of people did me a huge disservice by, first of all, assuming I knew how to be emotionally intelligent and vulnerable with employees. And secondly, expecting the expectation, especially when I was growing up with it as a professional, was keep your work life and your home life separate and never let your employees see you being what was described at the time as being weak, which is being human being vulnerable, you know, I'm not saying go cry to every employee, but letting your employees know that there's a real person behind that title and that there are things that aren't perfect, no matter how it may look, you may look like the CEO, but chances are there are things in your life that are challenging and make it really difficult sometimes. And a lot of times just seeing that vulnerability will really help an employee to understand that they are safe to describe what's going on, to ask for help. Now, I know when you and I spoke before, we were talking a bit about, you know, how social workers 
know this stuff. They've been tested on this stuff. They've learned this stuff, yet they don't always show up that way for one another in the workforce. So if social workers can't do it, <laughs> how can we expect that of somebody who doesn't have a social work background? Are there little tools they can be using or resources they can go to help become a better, more empathetic leader? Yeah. So even, I mean, social workers, I always go back to, like we said earlier about titles and even with all of our intelligence, we're still, you know, human. I'm a first time super clinical supervisor. So learn, even for me, as much experience as I have being an employee, I'm having to learn about how to just be reflective of what I need in order to be an effective supervisor. So tools, I would say for just, you know, the general public, I would probably say the first one would be self-reflection. I talked about self-reflection a lot in terms of looking at what do you need? What resources can you bring? Or mm -hmm. even a professional that is able to navigate that type of work culture or, you know, having someone come in that is an expert. You don't have to be an expert at everything. I think it's important to pull on your resources or even looking at, you know, people that can come in and give you an evaluation of what you need, mm -hmm. but really talking to your employees. And I want to keep it very generalized in the sense that depending on where our listeners are in terms of their workplace experience or the positions that they held, it's going to change for them. So the one thing I would say to keep it very generalized is self-reflection mm -hmm. as employee and, and as a manager. Well, Shara, you've given us some really great insight, and I really appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing your story, because when we share our stories this way, it allows other people space to share as much as they're comfortable with and to understand that they're not the only ones who are not maybe meeting with success in the moment, but that doesn't mean success isn't just 10 years down the road, perhaps, or two years down the road or whatever it may be. So where can our listeners find more information about you? I'd like you to talk about your books again or mention the titles so that people can sure. find some great resources sure. from you. Sure. So I want six different platforms, including LinkedIn is my primary place to go. So you can definitely look me up there. You can find me on Journey to Licensure. If you plug it into Google, my website will pop up. You can find me on Twitter. TikTok, Facebook, YouTube. I'm on all those platforms and my podcast is during the licensure. My two books that I have for social workers that are studying for their boards is 90 Days of Prayer, which is a prayer journal that I wrote when I was depressed after I failed my boards the first time. And 90 Days of Inspiration is a study companion mindset journal for social workers. There are only two of their kind that were pretty helpful for social workers that are taking their boards. So yeah, that's where I'm at with it. Thank you so much, Shara Ruffin, everyone. We appreciate your time today. And if you'd like more information about Envision Rise, you can find us at envisionrise.com. Thank you, Shara. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Subscribe, rate, and review the show and be a part of making a difference because it starts with you.